Welcome to the Joint Trauma System's Clinical Practice Guidelines podcast. This is Trevor from the Joint Trauma System. On this edition, we will be discussing Raboa with Lieutenant Colonel Jason Paisley. It's my pleasure to have Dr. Jason Paisley, Lieutenant Colonel, United States Air Force, here today. He's currently the Director of Physician Education at Baltimore Center for Sustainment of Trauma and Readiness Skills at the R.A. Cowley Shock Trauma Center in Baltimore, Maryland, and has previously been the trauma czar at Craig Joint Theater Hospital in 2014 and 2017. He is also an instructor and director for the American College of Surgeons Basic Endovascular Skills for Trauma Course. His skills, knowledge, and experiences with this topic are what bring him to us as the subject matter expert who will discuss Roboa with us today. Thank you for joining us today, Dr. Paisley. Thank you, Trevor. I'm happy to be here and happy to discuss Roboa with you all today. So first off, can you explain to us what is Roboa? Sure. Roboa is the resuscitative endovascular balloon occlusion of the aorta. Basically what it is, is it's putting up a balloon through the femoral artery into the aorta at a desired level and inflating it. By doing this, you're basically performing an internal aortic cross clamp. So before this was developed and used more frequently, we used to have to open up the chest and place a giant clamp on the aorta to occlude the aorta. But now with this device, we're able to do a similar type method using minimally invasive techniques by going through the groin. What events led up to the development of the CPG? This newer CPG is an update from Dr. Rasmussen's previous CPG of Raboa. And basically what led up to this new development and refinement of the CPG is newer equipment and material. So prior to this, we were using larger devices and larger wires that were typically used for ruptured abdominal aortic aneurysms. So we, we were using the same wires that the vascular surgeons were using with larger balloons that required larger sheaths to go through. With these large sheaths, they all had to be repaired with an open technique. The wires were very long and cumbersome and really were very difficult in the civilian world in a normal environment, let alone in a deployed setting or a deployed environment. So by the equipment getting better, by the sheaths getting smaller to a seven French and the delivery system coming down to one that is wire free, this really helped promote this procedure in the civilian sector, and it was an easier translation to the military sector by having less pieces, smaller packaging, and smaller profile, and an ease of use and to place it into patients. What are some experiences that you've had that led up to your contribution in developing this CPG? Personally, most of my experiences come uh, at the Shock Trauma Center in Baltimore, Maryland. One of my patients that I remember specifically was a 56-year-old gentleman that was involved in a high-speed motor vehicle collision, and he came in hypotensive and he was a non-responder. We were able to put in our uh, arterial line early to get an accurate beat-to-beat blood pressure, and we noted that he was hypotensive down in the 60s. He didn't respond to blood resuscitation. So from there, we were able to upsize his arterial line to a seven French sheath and get the Roboa catheter in place. While we were doing all this, we shot a chest x-ray to rule out any chest pathology, and we also did a fast exam to rule out any abdominal pathology. We All of those were negative. Once we shot the pelvis x-ray and noted that he had a, a widened SI joint and a widened uh, pubic symphysis, we put a binder on and we were able to put the balloon in place. Once we inflated the balloon at zone three, this markedly improved, improved his blood pressure, 
and we were able to take him to the hybrid room where he was able to get uh, angioembolization of his pelvis, and he uh, did well. Dr. Manley, one of my other co-authors on this CPG, has been deployed to a far forward location, and he is one of the, the first authors uh, in the recent conflicts to use this along with his emergency medicine physician to take care of several patients that they got in a mini mass uh, casualty incident. Between him and his colleague, they were able to place three separate Reboa devices, and this helped him both manage those patients from their own particular injuries, as well as help control hemorrhage to limit the amount of blood products that were needed uh, for these personnel, because blood was a limited resource as they were deployed to an austere location. So who should be putting in these devices? So putting in these devices, a consensus statement just came out from the American College of Surgeons Committee on Trauma, as well as the College of Emergency Physicians. And basically, people who should be putting these in are uh, anyone who's been trained, but most importantly, number one, it should be a trauma surgeon or acute care surgeon with the experience of going to the best course or a similar course where they've had their hands on the material and placed it in either a cadaver or a porcine model to make sure that they've accurately positioned these, put them in place, and they're safe to use them. Through this consensus statement, they also uh, have noted that emergency medicine physicians with critical care training that have attended the course are also permitted to put these in. And specifically for the military, they've made the caveat that military surgeons who act as a general or trauma surgeon during deployment, they should complete a formal training course such as the best course, and they can use Reboa in their skill set. Military emergency medicine physicians who work on a team with these types of surgeons during deployment must also complete a formal best course, and then they can also use Reboa in their skill set. So basically for military personnel, they need to have gone to the course and be comfortable with using the material. What are some of the alternatives to Reboa? Um, some of the alternatives to Reboa are what we did before we even had these devices. Now, it really depends on where the bleeding is going on. If the patient has chest trauma, Reboa is contraindicated and a thoracotomy would be performed anyway. Now, before Reboa came about, or if you don't have this device, if the bleeding is below the diaphragm and you need quick control of it, the easiest, quickest way in the emergency department is really to go through a left lateral thoracotomy. So going through the left chest, you can release any tamponades that's there. You can move the lung anteriorly, find the aorta, and place a cross-clamp on the aorta. So cross-clamping the aorta decreases blood flow into the abdomen and into the pelvis, similar to what the Reboa is doing. One of the drawbacks of this is now you've opened up the chest cavity, uh, and you can get coagulopathy and further bleeding from the raw surfaces of the intercostals. Uh, you can also lose more heat from this area as now you have another cavity that's open. And again, if you're opening up the thoracic cavity just for a cross clamp and for open cardiac massage, you're not doing any better than if you had a Reboa in place for the cross clamp and closed chest compressions for uh, cardiac massage. Are there any cases where Reboa would be the only option for aortic occlusion? There's no particular case where Reboa would be the only option. But it may be beneficial, especially in the deployed environment, if you were one of those surgeon emergency medicine teams and the surgeon was back in the operating room and only the emergency medicine physician was in the receiving area and a patient came in that had bleeding in their abdomen, 
that they needed controlled. Because at that point, the surgeon's still in the operating room taking care of another patient, and the emergency medicine physician may be more comfortable getting access in the groin and putting the balloon up to zone one in that case and blowing that up for control while they're mobilizing this patient to the operating room rather than the emergency medicine physician feeling comfortable doing a thoracotomy and cross-clamping the aorta. It just depends on the, the makeup of your team and how comfortable people are. And, and again, having less morbidity from a percutaneous technique of Reboa is probably better for the patient in that instance that I just described, rather than opening up their chest. Do you see Reboa being developed to the point that resuscitative thoracotomy is no longer used? I think that they both have their indications. I think uh, Reboa is another tool not to replace thoracotomy in all instances, but in certain instances, it's figuring out which tool is better to use. And I think that if you don't need to be in the chest, it's probably better to put a Reboa in if you have hemorrhage below the diaphragm, whether it's in the abdomen or the pelvis. Now, again, Reboa is not going to help if you have penetrating injury to the chest, whether it's the lung, the aorta, or the heart, because those things all need a thoracotomy or a clamshell or something to get access to the thoracic cavity. And once you're there, you can clamp the aorta if they have multiple things going on. But in, in cases of injury where everything is below the diaphragm, I think by all means, Reboa can definitely replace recessive thoracotomy with cross-clamping in that case. So with more training of trauma surgeons in the U.S., should we be seeing Reboa being used more frequently? I think with the the advent of the seven French sheath and the smaller delivery system uh, and the fact that it's wireless, it's much. It's a much easier procedure to do now than it was before. So I think many more people can be trained in doing this. And so I think we're going to see more and more of these balloons placed. And again, what, what is helpful is this can be used in patients who are hypotensive that are partial responders or non-responders. So their blood pressures are in the 50s and 60s, and you're using this as an adjunct rather than waiting for them to be in cardiac arrest before you open up their chest, which is a much more morbid procedure. I think you've touched on this a little bit already, but what are the indications for Reboa and when should we consider putting one in? So the indications for Reboa really are patients who come in from trauma who are hypotensive and are either partial responders or non-responders. And by partial responders, I mean someone that you give a few units of blood to and their blood pressure initially gets better, but then it drops again. Uh, Or a non-responder is someone who's hypotensive and you give them blood or blood products and their blood pressure isn't getting better and it's going lower, lower, and lower. In in either case, these patients are are dying from exsanguination. And what the Reboa can do in this case is to get proximal control and decrease blood flow to whatever area is bleeding. So basically, if you have a patient come in who's hypotensive and is falls into one of those categories, the key thing is to get arterial access in the groin and then make an early decision to go to a Reboa to help decrease the inflow to whatever your source of bleeding is. You've also touched on the zones that Reboa is used in. Can you explain more about where the Reboa should be placed and what indicates which zone it should be placed in? Sure. There are three zones uh, of the aorta for Reboa. So zone one is the thoracic aorta. So that's from your left subclavian. 
uh, to your diaphragm. Zone two is below the diaphragm to your renal vessels. And then zone three is from your renal vessels to your aortic bifurcation. Basically, your landing zones are either zone one or zone three, depending on the scenario. And the reason why we don't put things into zone two is when you're doing this procedure, all you know is, oh, my patient has blood in their abdomen or they don't. And you can't tell whether it's to the spleen or the liver or it's to small bowel or something. So zone two just doesn't make sense for you to try to figure out what's going on. And it's impossible to actually know where that is. So if there's abdominal bleeding, the best thing to do is to put it up in zone one. If the abdomen's negative and you think they have pelvic bleeding, then it's to go down into zone three. And all of this is based off of external landmarks. So when you look at the device, at the very top of it is a a curly Q or a P-tip, what this does is this helps keep the device uh, in the center of the aorta and not to go down any of the branches such as the renals or something like that. So if you're going to put it up in zone one because you think they have abdominal bleeding uh, or they're in cardiac arrest, what you want to do is you measure that P-tip to the sternal notch. So by putting the P-tip in the sternal notch, when that gets placed in the aorta, the balloon is going to inflate in that thoracic portion of the aorta, occluding blood flow to the abdomen. Now, if their abdomen was negative and it appeared that they had an open book pelvic fracture or you thought they had pelvic bleeding and you were going to put it in zone three, you would then measure that P-tip to the xiphoid process. So by measuring that P-tip at the xiphoid process, the balloon, which is below the P-tip would fall in that area below between the renals and the aortic bifurcation. So by putting the balloon at the aortic bifurcation, that would cut off the inflow to both the common iliac and subsequent internal iliac arteries, decreasing blood flow uh, into your pelvis. You mentioned that it shouldn't be used in zone two. Are there particular instances where it was used in zone two unsuccessfully, or is it just logical not to deploy Raboa there? There's no particular instances per se. It just, theoretically, it doesn't make sense because you can't, in the emergency department with the current means that we have, you can't be so selective to know that they're bleeding from the left kidney, you know, or they're, you know, so we can deploy it lower in zone two, or they're bleeding from their spleen, so I have to deploy it higher in zone two. I mean, right now, it's, are they bleeding in their abdomen, yes or no? If they're bleeding in their abdomen, yes, then deploy it above there, and you're able to occlude all of those spots. Because once you get them remotely stable, you're going to take them directly to the operating room where you can figure out exactly what's bleeding, place a clamp specifically on that vessel, and then you're able to decrease the fluid in your balloon and deflate the balloon to return perfusion to the rest of the body. When should Raboa be employed rather than other RAO methods? Um, so Raboa should really be employed whenever your patient is a non-responder or a transient responder, you need to make sure that they don't have additional thoracic trauma that you need to be in their chest. If they have thoracic trauma that, that you need to be in their chest, opening their chest to take care of that issue is paramount. And then you can clamp the aorta from there. If there's other injuries that are below the diaphragm, if they have anything else above the diaphragm, Raboa doesn't help you. So if there's a neck injury or a carotid injury that's bleeding, Raboa is not going to help you because all of those sources are above where uh, the Raboa would be placed. What resources are in the CPG to help determine when Raboa should be used? Yeah, in the CPG, it, it has a very good algorithm for both patients who are in traumatic arrest 
as well as for the patients like we described who are responders and non-responders. It's very easy, specifically when it's a single type of trauma, whether it's a gunshot wound to the abdomen or a stab wound to the groin or something, to make some very cut and dry decisions. It's a little bit more difficult in the deployed environment, specifically with IED blasts and peppering and things like that. So really what the clinician needs to be astute on is using their other forms of imaging to really figure out what's going on with your patient, getting that chest x-ray if you have it, or ultrasounding the chest, or just putting in bilateral chest tubes to rule out chest pathology, and then doing your fast examination to rule out abdominal pathology, and then ideally getting a uh, pelvic x-ray to see if there's a pelvic fracture there that could or could not be bleeding, contributing to the hypotension. And then again, our patients may also have amputations of some sort. So making sure that any amputation site has a cat tourniquet in place and hemorrhage is controlled there because we'd hate to do other procedures to patients that may have other consequences when potentially it may be a different source, whether that's an extremity that's bleeding or a scalp that's bleeding or something like that. Now, when you go through the, the algorithms, when we talk about traumatic arrest, the other important thing to do is this is just like any other cardiac arrest that comes into your bay. You really need to determine what resources you have and what other patients are around you. In some of your deployed environments, you may be the only team and you may only have your, yourself as the sole provider with another surgeon or an emergency medicine physician and a very small team. Anyone in traumatic arrest, regardless of the cause, will take a lot of resources. So you need to determine whether or not you're going to use your resources on this patient or are there three or four more other patients that are coming in that you may need to uh, put your resources in. But if you have a single patient and, you, and they're in traumatic arrest, you basically want to go through your ACLS and ATLS protocols and see whether they have a pulse or not. And then basically the algorithm in the CPG uh, delineates it out for you. So when you look at Appendix A for the algorithm, uh, this is for traumatic arrest. Basically, you want to know if there's a palpable carotid pulse or not. If there's no palpable carotid pulse, then you want to know if there are any other signs of life or any cardiac condition on ultrasound. So basically using your FAST exam to look for fluid around the heart and then just slapping on your electrodes to see whether or not there is any electrical activity. If there is, then you go along with your ATLS protocols such as intubation, volume infusion, and assessment for hemorrhage, and then see where the patient is. If they perk up and they do have some response, then you, you need to see what's the source of that. And again, that's, that, that falls more under the responder category that's in the next appendix. Uh, if they don't have any clinical response to there, is it blunt or penetrating trauma? And then depending if it's penetrating trauma, then you want to know if it's in the neck that needs to go to the OR. If it's in the chest, they need a thoracotomy. If it's in an extremity, you want to use tourniquets and resuscitation. But if it's in the abdomen, pelvis, or a junctional injury, consider doing uh, Reboa versus just doing a thoracotomy with cross clamp like we talked about before. Now, if your patient comes in without any organized EKG activity or cardiac contraction on ultrasound, then you have to figure out if it's blunt or penetrating trauma. Blunt arrests uh, in the field or while you're deployed, those have a miserable survival outlook and those patients should just be declared dead. However, if it's a penetrating trauma, and they do not have a devastating head injury, and it's less than 15 minutes of CPR, then you can consider putting in a Reboa 
uh, in those patients versus your thoracotomy for a chest injury or a neck exploration for a neck injury or extremity uh, for uh, an extremity injury with a tourniquet in place. And now moving to the second version is if your patient comes in in profound shock and they're not in cardiac arrest, the key thing is to figure out where their injury is. So specifically, we'll break this into blunt and penetrating trauma. So in blunt trauma, you want to know if they have a chest injury or not. If they have a chest injury, that's probably a contraindication to using Reboa. Um, and you can clear the chest by either getting a chest x-ray that looks good, putting in bilateral chest tubes, that can at least clear you for a hemothorax, or if you're good at ultrasound, you could attempt to use ultrasound. Now, if the chest is clear and the abdominal fast is positive and your patient isn't responding to blood products, you should really consider a zone one Reboa placement to decrease the bleeding in the abdomen as you're taking them to the operating room. Now, if your abdominal fast is negative, but you think there's a pelvic fracture and your patient's a non-responder or a transient responder, Blowing up the balloon in zone three could be helpful to decrease inflow to those bleeding vessels while you're mobilizing the patient to the operating room for either pelvic packing or exploration or whatever you have at your particular uh, venue. Now, in penetrating injuries, it's a little bit different because it's going to depend really on where the injury is located. If you have an abdomen, pelvis, or junctional injury, you could consider a zone one or zone three Reboa as appropriate. Uh, but again, if it's in the neck, the chest, or the extremity, you should go with a different modality because Reboa really isn't indicated in any of those procedures. What are the steps to using Reboa? So the steps are to use Reboa, number one is to make an early decision that you need to get arterial access for Reboa because arterial access is the hardest thing to do. So really, percutaneous access can be obtained by landmark identification or by ultrasound. The key thing is you want to get into the common femoral artery. And your common femoral artery, you want to access about two centimeters below the inguinal ligament. So the key thing is that your inguinal ligament goes from your ASIS to your pubic symphysis. It doesn't always fall in the groin crease. And depending on the person's body habitus, their groin crease may throw you off exceptionally. So the key thing is to identify where the inguinal ligament is. And then you want to go about one finger breadth below that or two centimeters. If you go any further down, you're gonna be in the superficial femoral artery, and that's gonna really be problematic once you place your sheath and once you place the catheter because it's going to be completely occlusive here and you may end up with ipsilateral leg issues uh, from ischemia there. So once you decide that you're gonna do this procedure, you wanna access the common femoral artery at two centimeters below the inguinal ligament, and I think ultrasound is the easiest way to do this. Once you identify the artery, you want to enter at about a 45-degree angle with the needle, and you can either use a 5-French micropuncture kit or the 18-gauge standard femoral arterial kit. And then once the wire has been passed into the artery, uh, you can then remove the needle and place the catheter. Now, this can be a little bit problematic if your patient is already in cardiac arrest, as you may not be able to discern the artery from the vein on ultrasound because it's not pulsatile uh, and you obviously can't palpate any type of pulse. In these cases, uh, never feel afraid, if you know how, to do a groin cutdown right over the same area where the femoral vessels lie and then make sure you go high enough so you can identify the inguinal ligament and make sure you directly cannulate the common femoral artery before it bifurcates into the SFA and the profunda. 
So after you get your five French micropuncture or 18 gauge femoral arterial kit in, and you decide that you're going to do this procedure, you need to upsize to a seven French sheath. So you do this in a standard way. You would upsize any type of device. So you would put an 035 guide wire into your either 18 gauge uh, sheath or your five French arterial sheath, swap that out over the wire, and then place the seven French sheath with its introducer in place. Once you get that into place, you want to make sure that the stopcock is turned off on the side so the patient's blood doesn't go on the floor. Uh, from there, you're basically ready to go to upsize to your Reboa. So basically, you want to see what whatever kind of balloon you have. And in this case, we're pretty much talking about the ER Pritime Reboa, which goes through the seven French sheath that's, wire, uh, that's wireless. So doing this, you want to make sure you measure to where you want it to be. And if you want to land it in zone one, you want to make sure that your P-tip is at the sternal notch. And if you're going to zone three, then you want the P-tip to be at the xiphoid. Uh, to prepare your balloon, you want to make sure that you get a syringe uh, with preferably uh, injectable saline as well as contrast and a 50-50 dilution. So when you take an x-ray, you can see your balloon blown up. If you don't have contrast, not a big deal. But you want to make sure that the balloon works that it's not popped and not dysfunctional. And then you wanna make sure that you remove all of the fluid outside the balloon and that you slide up the protector over the balloon and the P-tip to help insert it into the sheath. Now, once you've measured how far you're gonna put it into, you're then gonna use the peel away sheath to help get the device into your seven French sheath. Once it's got about 10 or 20 centimeters, you can peel away the peel away sheath and then advance it to where you want it to be. Once you think it's advanced to the predetermined markers that you've decided initially, ideally it'd be best to get an x-ray, an ultrasound, or fluoroscopy to confirm that your catheter is in the correct location, whether it's in zone one or zone three and it's right where you want it. Uh, there are two radio-opaque markers that are on the device that you can see under x-ray or fluoroscopy. So once those are in where you want it to, you want to then uh, inflate your balloon. Now, depending on where it's located, uh, you don't want to go. You don't. You don't want to inflate it with too much fluid. At zone one, it takes about uh, eight cc's uh, to inflate that fully. And again, it's more of a tactile feedback as well as a response of the patient. Uh, so, ideally, if you can hook up your arterial line to the back end of the Reboa catheter, that would be fantastic. Or if you have an upper extremity arterial line placed, that would be better or even just a blood pressure cuff. Also, what you can do is you can try to palpate the contralateral femoral artery. And when that is absent, then you know that there's no more blood uh, going into the abdomen or below your balloon. Uh, once you blow this up, then you wanna use your three-way stopcock to lock that in place. Then all the fluid that's in your balloon will stay in your balloon. And hopefully your patient has responded appropriately. So from here, you need to decide where to take your patient next. Obviously, if you have your balloon up in zone one because you have abdominal bleeding, you're gonna take that patient directly to the operating room for an exploratory laparotomy. Uh, if your patient has uh, a pelvic fracture or a zone three injury and their abdomen appears negative on ultrasound, uh, this is gonna be institution dependent on where you go from there. In the deployed setting, you don't really have many other resources. You'll probably still go to the operating room for pelvic packing or for pelvic exploration. In the civilian world, or depending on what your resources are, a hybrid room may be better to where you could do an angiogram, possible uh, embolization, uh, 
in addition to any other operative procedures you need to do, whether that's pelvic packing, whether that's an external fixator or something else in that nature. Now, once you've uh, stopped the bleeding, uh, whether it's in the abdomen or the pelvis and you're ready to take everything out, the key thing is, is to remove the balloon and the catheter and then make sure the coagulopathy has been corrected before you attempt to remove the sheath. If your patient uh, does not have a coagulopathy and you're gonna remove the sheath, you remove the sheath uh, and then hold pressure. Typically, you wanna hold pressure for approximately 30 minutes using a graduated system. So initially, 10 minutes of firm pressure and then slowly uh, decreasing it over the next 20 minutes. And then probably putting some sort of pressure dressing in place and making sure the patient stays uh, in a supine position for eight hours. Ideally, it would be good before you remove the sheath to shoot a quick contrast angiography to make sure that everything is okay where you put your uh, sheath in to make sure you're happy with its position and to make sure there's good distal runoff. It's also key, key, key that when you're doing this, make sure that you have either palpable pulses uh, in the leg or an angiogram showing open vasculature distal to where you'd put your sheath in. So another thing to think about with removing the balloon and sheath is if you can, it may not hurt to just give some direct anticoagulation to where the sheath is. So any type of thrombus that's there uh, or anything like that uh, may get broken up. So ideally, you should flush it with 100 cc's of heparinized saline, which is 1,000 units of heparin in one liter of saline. Um, and again, if placed percutaneously, you can remove it with direct pressure held. Uh, however, if it was done in the open method, it's going to need, need to be repaired uh, via cutdown. When you repair it via cutdown, you want to make sure that you tack any intima that may have become disrupted uh, so you don't form a flap and have thrombus that way. Also, if for some reason you try to hold pressure percutaneous and that's not working, the default is to always cut down and repair it primarily. Uh, when you repair it primarily, probably best to uh, repair it in a transverse fashion using 5-0 or 6-0 uh, proline sutures, either interrupted or running. I like interrupted. And then you want to make sure that you have good forward bleeding, back bleeding, and make sure you flush with heparinized saline. And if you're going to do it the open method, probably best to run a Fogarty down distally uh, to make sure there's no clots. So thank you for explaining some of the steps to using Reboa. Now, what are some of the pitfalls of using Reboa? Some of the pitfalls uh, for Reboa are making the decision to use it, because basically people are always hesitant to do something they've not done before or they're not that familiar with. So again, making an early decision to use it can save blood in the system and can save your patient. So if you decide to use it and your patient falls in that category, by all means, pull the trigger and do it. Uh, if your patient loses pulses, the mortality is so much higher than if they're just hypotensive and you're able to decrease bleeding and further resuscitate the patient. Another pitfall is difficulty in locating the common femoral artery in the groin. So you really need to be familiar with every method of finding the femoral artery, whether that's percutaneous through landmarks, uh, whether that's through ultrasound, or when all else fails, just open up and find it directly uh, by dissecting. Another pitfall is inserting the Reboa too low. You want to make sure you do this at the common femoral artery two centimeters below the inguinal ligament. If you go any lower, you go past the femoral artery bifurcation, you're probably going to be in the superficial femoral artery. And by dilating that and cannulating that and placing the balloon in there, 
that can have disastrous complications, especially when you're trying to remove it. And in most cases, this needs direct repair and likely interposition graft with a reverse saphenous vein graft. Another pitfall is an unrecognized proximal femoral or iliac artery transection. So if the injury is above where you're trying to place this in the groin, you may have trouble threading the catheter or things like that. Um, so ideally, if you note that there is a groin or a lower abdominal injury on one side, it's probably best to cannulate the other side to make sure that you're getting above that area uh, into the aorta to make sure that you blow the balloon up in a, in a good area uh, to decrease the bleeding to the injured side. And again, if you ever have trouble with one side, switch to the other side. Um, another pitfall is failing to address chest pathology. Again, you're blowing a balloon up in the aorta, so you want to make sure that all the injuries are below where you are. If you have an aortic injury above your balloon and you blow up your balloon, all you're going to do is increase the pressure in that zone of injury. And if you have an aortic injury, for example, above the balloon, that's just going to rupture or they're going to bleed out faster. So you want to make sure that you clear the chest, whether that's with a chest x-ray, an ultrasound, uh, or through uh, chest tubes. You want to make sure that your catheter and guide wire moves freely. You never want to push against resistance because if you push against resistance, this could tear things, could make an injury worse or something else. So if this ever happens, stop, take a moment, maybe try to pull back and reinsert. If you again have any type of resistance, uh, get help, get an x-ray, shoot some pictures, try the other side, or just go to uh, another method of aortic occlusion, such as a resuscitative thoracotomy. Another pitfall is that you don't want to overinflate the balloon. The capacity is 24 cc's, and that's 32 millimeters on the balloon, and most patients are never that big, uh, whether it's in zone one or zone three. So again, in most patients, it takes between 8 and 12 cc's of fluid, um, and you want to make sure that you uh, inflate to a patient response, so their blood pressure improving. Uh, you can get some tactile feedback. Uh, when you're inflating the balloon, or by uh, making the contralateral femoral artery uh, pulse disappear. Um, and if you overinflate the balloon, you could burst a, a vessel and cause more bleeding, or you can burst the balloon and then it's doing no good and you have to remove it. There could be parts of the balloon that are floating around, and obviously you need to get another balloon or go to some other method. Another pitfall is leaving the balloon in place too long. Again, zone one of the aorta is similar to cross-clamping the aorta through the chest. Ideally, getting that clamp off as soon as possible will decrease the ischemia that you're causing to the rest of the gut and the rest of the viscera. So really 15 to 30 minutes in that location and as, as limited as possible. And zone three has a little bit more wiggle room um, because the viscera is being perfused. And again, once you get this patient to the operating room, you can always deflate the balloon, reposition your balloon, uh, or things like that. And especially once you get a clamp on the blood vessel, let's say it's a spleen that's bleeding and you clamp the splenic hilum, by all means, please, please, please take down your reboa. So the rest of the blood vessels to the intestine, the liver, the extremities are all getting good flow to decrease your reperfusion injury. Um, another pitfall is failing to work with a heightened level of urgency. 
everyone knows once you do a resuscitative thoracotomy and someone's chest is open and you're looking at the heart and the lungs and there's a big clamp coming out of it, everyone moves super duper quick to get that patient to the operating room for their next step of care. But when you just have a small catheter in their groin with, you know, what looks like a center line in it, people just don't have that same sense of urgency. So you need to make sure that you and your team know that's the same as their chest open with a clamp hanging out of it. And you need to move, move, move to get them to the operating room to get the Reboa down once you get bleeding control so you can limit that ischemia reperfusion. You want to make sure that you adequately secure the Reboa in place after inflation so it doesn't migrate due to proximal aortic distension after you restore their blood flow. And that can be done by holding it in place manually or by putting it in place with the central line uh, securing device. You want to make sure that you don't deflate the balloon too quickly before adequate volume resuscitation. Make sure that you and anesthesia are working together to make sure the patient is hemodynamically stable for the balloon to come down and take it down incrementally. Don't do it all or nothing. You also want to make sure to remove the arterial sheath at the appropriate time. Make sure your patient is not coagulopathic uh, because this could cause more problems. So make sure that your patient is adequately resuscitated and their coagulopathy is uh, re restored uh, before you remove it. You want to be careful about injury at the arterial access point. So after you remove the sheath, make sure you monitor that leg closely for any re-bleeding or thrombus or interval injury or ischemia. Make sure you check pulses in that leg. Make sure you assess it for warmth and things like that. And you do it regularly um, because decreased lower extremity perfusion may require an angiogram, thrombectomy, or an arterial repair if there are any changes in that leg. And you also want to make sure, especially in the deployed setting, not to commit too many resources into a patient that is going to be futile. So in a mass casualty incident or multiple patients or limited resources, really make sure that you're using your personnel to the best of their ability to help the most amount of people. You're using your blood resources and your operating room resources to help the most amount of people at any given time. Each CPG includes a section on performance improvement monitoring. Would you mind taking a moment to explain the performance improvement monitoring procedures for Reboa? As far as performance and adherence measures, the things that the JTS and what we're looking for is if the Reboa was performed, what was it performed for? Was it performed for hemorrhagic shock with uncontrolled abdominal, pelvic, or junctional lower extremity bleeding? Other measures include what was the chest evaluated via ultrasound, chest x-ray, or chest tube for contraindications for Reboa placement? Was an abdominal fast performed? And what was documented at the time of Reboa placement? Was Reboa performed only for patients with signs of hemorrhagic shock? All applications of Reboa are supposed to be identified to the JTS to ensure that the appropriate capture of data was made in the DODTR form. And all Reboa-related complications are documented in the medical record so we can see what happened and why. Uh, some performance improvement for data capture and reporting are the number of investigations, performance, and adherence measures. This will be recorded quarterly by the JTS PI branch chief to the JTS director, and the JTS will identify any Reboa patients in the trauma registry and facilitate capture of their completed medical records. Where is the research going with Reboa, and what changes do you expect to see in the future? So I think this is a very exciting time for this procedure and where we're going. Um, specifically in the military realm is 
are, are we able to do this in austere environments or our role twos and role threes in theater as compared to here at stateside where we do them in normal standard you know, hospitals, whether they're level twos or level ones. Some of the other interesting research uh, that's going on is specifically we know at zone one, you only have limited time, 15 to 30 minutes potentially before you get irreversible ischemia to the viscera that can cause severe reperfusion injuries. And sometimes, depending on our transport times, we may be limited as to can we put this in, can we not put it in, and, and most of our transport times are longer than that. So that's really decreasing our chances for pushing this out anywhere in the field. And even once you're at a role two or role three facility, even in theater, some things may take longer. So Colonel DeBose and some other people are looking at partial Reboa or P Reboa that's looking at different inflation and deflation times of the balloon. And can this be self-regulated uh, through a system or manually regulated or things like that? So there's a lot of research in that realm that's going on. Other possibilities include different types of devices, as well as devices in conjunction with other resuscitative measures, Now, whether that's different kinds of fluids or things like that. So it's a very exciting time uh, in medicine in this regard, uh, both for Reboa and for other things when patients are in extremis and almost passing away. So I think this is definitely something to keep attuned to and to keep an eye out for further research in this realm. And as things change, uh, this CPG and other CPGs will change uh, as this affects both the civilian side and the military side. Can you imagine a day where this is something that can be deployed almost immediately in the field at point of injury? Um, yes, I think I think I, um, we can. Now, this has been deployed before almost at the point of injury uh, through the London Air Ambulance System. Uh, through two separate patients. One was involved in a bicycle accident and one was uh, from a fall. In that system, it's interesting because there's an emergency medicine physician that's on board the helicopter with them. So it was done by a physician. And these were placed in the zone three position where you have a little bit more time uh, to get the patient to operative care. The key thing, especially from developing it and installing it or placing it at the point of injury or close to the point of injury is really going to be teaching those providers to find who the right person to put it in is and how to actually perform the procedure safely um, without many complications. Again, this is a technical procedure that does have several pitfalls that we mentioned. So really, it's making sure those people are trained to the best of their ability and really making sure they put them in people who actually really need it. So would you expect Reboa training to become standard for people that are getting deployed? Reboa training should be standard for personnel getting deployed, specifically for all surgeons getting deployed and all emergency medicine physicians getting deployed, because those are the people at the front line of the hospital that will see these patients where placing this device could be the difference between life or death. So those personnel are the key personnel to learn how to do this. I think that those are the people that have the skills, the abilities, and the knowledge to, to do this and to do it appropriately. At this time, those are the, that's the only group of personnel that should be putting this in place. I think trying to expand it to other people may be fraught with some complications, at least at this time, that we don't want to get into. So do you have any closing comments about Reboa or anything else you'd like to share with us before we finish up? Uh, sure. 
Um, Trevor, I'd like to thank you and the JTS for this opportunity to discuss Reboa. This is obviously something I'm very passionate about. And I really think that with this procedure, getting it in the right hands of the right people to use it at the right time will really have a drastic effect on our soldiers, especially those ones that have the non-compressible torso hemorrhage that need a few extra minutes to stabilize uh, before we can get them to the operating theater or to wherever they're going for more definitive care. I really see that the research in this area will just continue to improve. And by following the research there and translating it to our population, I think we'll be able to help more and more soldiers. So it's really exciting. And I really appreciate the opportunity to discuss this. Well, thank you, Dr. Paisley, for taking some of your time today to share your expertise with us. Sure thing. Thank you for this. And I appreciate all my other authors and everyone else that has helped me along the way. This concludes this edition of the Combat Casualty Care podcast. Please return for our next edition by subscribing through your podcast app or check back on the website. Remember that you can always find the latest TC3 and Combat Casualty Care information, knowledge tools, and the current guidelines at www.deployedmedicine.com. All one word. You can also download the Deployed Medicine mobile application to your phone or tablet. On the app, you can access the latest TC3 content and JTS clinical practice guidelines, as well as instructional videos and classes. Feel free to provide feedback, ask questions, prompt discussions, or make a combat casualty care suggestion on the feedback form of the website. Our target is eliminating preventable combat death, which can be achieved with the right training and the right tools applied by the right people at the right time. As always, stay safe out there and continue saving lives on the battlefield, wherever that battlefield or deployed setting or street is in the world.